So, you know, bit by bit discovering kind of the diversity of horror, the the range and in some cases the quality of it, you know, that it wasn't all half-hearted Jason X's with uh, you know, <laughs> dumb, dumb teenagers getting cleared for having sex. Yeah. Uh, that, that was part of what brought me around on it. Hello, the internet. You are listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, and also the number one Halloween costume of 2021. That's right. Sexy Luke T. Harrington is tearing up the charts at the Spirit Halloween stores. Um, so thank you for all the people who have supported me along the way. Um, it's Halloween, man. It's Halloween weekend. We are launching this episode the Friday before Halloween. Um, this is a little bonus episode. My producer Blake and I thought you might enjoy. Uh, previously, this was only available to Patreon supporters, but we're making it available to everyone. Why? Because we like you and because it sure beats a candy apple stuffed full of razor blades. So it's no tricks. It's all treats here on this special Halloween weekend bonus episode of Change My Mind. I'm going to flip you over to the conversation and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the show. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, Tasha is the uh, film and TV editor over at Polygon, formerly with the AV Club. You've also written for, what, The Verge, I think? and A lot of different places. There was sure. a place, um, I mean, I left the AV Club to join up with a group of people going to work for Pitchfork and forming a site called The Dissolve. And right. the dissolve lasted about two years before they pulled the plug because they were about. To and then it dissolved. It dissolved. Right? We made that joke a lot. We made a yeah. lot of dissolved jokes. <laughs> uh, they were selling the business off to Condé Nast and they basically dropped all of their peripherals except Pitchfork itself. And after that, I worked full time freelance for a while. So name a publication. It's entirely possible that I've written for it, at least <laughs> a, an online culture publication. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on the show. I've admired your work for a while. I've enjoyed your Twitter for quite some time. My understanding is you're here to talk about your changing relationship with horror cinema. I am, um, in fact. We were talking a little bit about this uh, before the show. As someone who occasionally writes dark fiction and... You have a published written horror novel. I do, yes. You can, you can um, come out and say that. <laughs> I have a published written horror novel. Yeah, it's um I flog it probably more than I should on this podcast. So it's not like listeners don't know about it. Currently self-published because the publisher that or- originally put it out folded, but technically <laughs> uh, did it dissolve? Yes, it did. <laughs> it did. Okay. If you want to make jokes, the name of the original publisher was Postmortem Press. So oh, dear. yeah, now you can everybody can do postmortems on postmortem press. Uh, the jokes um, kind of write themselves, but they're it's, they're kind it's, of sad, <laughs> reflexive jokes. <laughs> Yeah, actually, the um, the publisher for for postmortem uh, he closed it because of health problems. But he's doing okay these days. 
he actually started a new publisher, uh, which is called Petulant Child Press. Um, wow. Yeah, it's, you know, kind of a smaller, smaller outfit and publishes fewer, fewer books, mostly just for fun, I think. I don't, I don't think he's trying to make a ton of money at it anymore. But um, anyway, he's doing well and I'm happy for him. So, yeah, I actually um, am a big fan of the horror genre um, and also of cinema. I have a degree in film studies. There was a there was a time in my life when I considered myself a film critic. Um, I actually I, I, I wrote film criticism close to full time for a few years and decided I couldn't take any more of it <laughs> because so much, so much, or let me put it this way. So many of the movies that get put out are just so mediocre, you know, like, how do you take it? I, I ran out of things to say, like, I was like, it's an okay movie. There's nothing special about it. How do I expand this into 500 words? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, part of how I took it, it, it is honestly a truism with film criticism that what we hate more than anything is a truly mediocre film. Because, because what can you is, write about it? If a film is dreadful, like there's a lot to say. If a film is and it's fun to say, it, to say. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, in either case, it's fun to say. I mean, I, yeah, I love sure. having a fantastic experience at the theater that I can't wait to tell other people about. I for love sure. having a movie that I love and and want to share with other people. But yeah, when you when you see something where you kind of feel it was clearly made by a committee uh, <laughs> or clearly made for the money. And there's just nothing particularly exceptional or outstanding about it in any direction. It is really hard to come up with something to say about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of how do I deal with it? Well, I, I became an editor. So <laughs> these days, uh, I'm probably going to assign somebody else to that movie. <laughs> uh, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become an editor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I I mean, I think I was always a better editor than a, a writer. I, I enjoy writing, but I'm one of these people that sweat and labor over every word. I have a oh, lot of colleagues sure. that, you know, can sit down and, and write a perfectly cogent review in an hour. And that was never me. Yeah. So editing, I think, tends to be more, maybe more in my skill set. And mm -hmm, I still write, mm -hmm. but I don't feel the pressure to write that I used to anymore. But honestly, I mean, I know we're going to kind of back up and look at the big picture here, but being a writer and, and having to cover whatever came along, whatever fit in the schedule is a big part of how I changed my mind about horror films. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. I will say, by nature, I tend to be the sort of writer who obsesses over every word, but I got myself a gig at a clickbait factory and I have learned how to crank stuff out. <laughs> it's actually been really good for me. I say clickbait factory. I should probably not because I want to keep my job. Um, Grunge.com, they publish some good stuff. It's definitely designed for um, contextual advertising, uh, which is the industry term for literal clickbait. Like <laughs> Articles designed to make people click. But um, they, they do publish good stuff and I am not ashamed to work for them. And people should... Check out my work on grunge.com. All right, so let's let's talk horror. Horror is, let's say, near and dear to my heart. I, I really enjoy a good horror movie. My wife does not like horror. Um, and back when I was dating her in college, she would go to horror movies with me, which I always appreciated. I, I you know, 
meant she really loved me if she would suffer through a horror movie with me. And then, as you know, the second I married her, she quit. So, <laughs> oh, wow! Of all of these, they 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 baited me along until we got married, and then they changed their ways. Stories I've ever heard. <laughs> I have never heard one about horror movies before. That's fantastic. Well, you know, it wasn't like she pretended to like them. You know, it was like she she was very upfront about not liking them. She was like, "For your sake, I'll go to them." And you know, then it was. Once once she landed me, it was like, OK, I've, I'm done. I've done my done my duty here. Um, <laughs> she 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 did the same thing with um, laughing at my jokes, which I understand is pretty typical. So um, <laughs> um, every time she tells me I'm not funny, I'm always like, there's only one person in this room who has gotten paid thousands of dollars for his jokes. And it's not you, but whatever. Um. <laughs> Whereas uh, my husband is tends towards uh, some, some fairly esoteric geeky humor. And from time to time, <laughs> I'll laugh at something he'll say, and he'll just laugh and say, you love me. I know you love me. Cause you laughed at that joke. It was kind of a nice feeling. Well, you're obviously, us, a, I suppose. Yeah. You're obviously a film geek. Does that make you. Oh, I'm, or are, 12 or different, not? 12, I'm at least 12 different flavors of geek. You know, I'm a science fiction geek. I'm a fantasy geek. I'm a, a super hardcore, like role playing uh, tabletop RPG geek. I'm kind of a board game geek. Uh, there's there's a lot of stuff that I go geeky for. <laughs> right on. Right on. So you are into speculative fiction, let's say. But <laughs> Generally mixed... not by that name, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um speculative I mean, spe fiction like it's it's a good catch-all term for mm. sci-fi horror fantasy if you don't want to say all of those syllables but i see people these days at least it, it feels like it's kind of like lexically drifted to just like the kind of thing you say in the same same way you say you know the magical realism not if you're talking about the specific movement of magical realism mm -hmm. which which originated in a specific place and culture mm -hmm. with specific mm -hmm. books but if you're trying to sell if you're if you're neil gaiman and you're trying to market <laughs> a fantasy novel without ever calling it a fantasy novel yeah yeah and that's not a knock on him it's a a positioning thing for for publishers and publicists sure, sure. it's how do you say this is science fiction without turning off people who think science fiction sound geeky Sounds right. geeky. You call it speculative fiction. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. sorry, but that that term does kind of make me laugh. Well, no, I mean, I I get it. I get it. Um, I've actually <laughs> we're getting way off topic already, but that's fine. Um, I actually have a novel I'm trying to sell right now. Um, and uh, every once in a while, there's a um, like a Twitter pitching event for novels, um, which is you're supposed to tweet out like a one or two sentence pitch for your book, and then agents are supposed to come to you if it sounds interesting or whatever. And there's all these, all these hashtags you're supposed to use. Um, and I had one the other day that uh, was, it was a dark fiction pitching event. So, you know, horror, dark fantasy, that sort of thing. And there's this, this long list of genre hashtags that were approved. And it was like, you know, it was like horror, psychological thriller, dark fiction, or you know, dark fantasy or whatever. And then towards the bottom, there was hashtag SPEC. And it said that was speculative fiction. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, what does that mean? Like, why would I choose that over like dark fantasy or horror? Like uh, all these genres are speculative. Like, Especially I guess unless you're writing about serial killers or whatever. Spec I don't know. writing is already a very specific term that means a very specific thing. So yeah, yeah. Trying to edge into that space with that uh, hashtag seems a little fraught. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird. I don't, I, it's one of those words. Yeah. 
kind of like, I think we were talking about this before we started recording. Like if you have a horror novel that you're, you're trying to sell to more people than the standard horror crowd, you call it a psychological thriller because that sounds classier. Um, <laughs> same kind of thing. But why don't we talk about your relationship to horror? Because what you told me uh, before we, before we um, met up was that you've had kind of a constantly evolving relationship with horror. Um, we're kind of, I don't know if it is against it the right word or not into it and then came around to it and now you're kind of anti-horror again, right? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the arc. And I'm I'm just positive that the reasons I'm kind of not in the mood for horror right now are personal and current reasons. And then I'm going to evolve back to appreciating the genre. But I mean, to start out with, I like as, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to be a gangster. That's irrelevant, though. As far back <laughs> as I can remember, I I read horror books. I, mm -hmm. I mean, literally, like as a, a middle grade kid, I was reading you know, books with with werewolves and vampires and uh, killers and, you know, stuff like that. I, the the kind of morbid phase that an awful lot of kids go through that probably sure. explains the existence of like the Goosebumps books. Mm -hmm. uh, I definitely went through that and I graduated from that to Stephen King. Mm -hmm. So I I always was interested in horror as a reader, but just not really as a, a film goer, not really mm -hmm. as a viewer. And in the is that because era, of like jump scares and that sort of thing, or is you know I'm I'm a thousand years old, so jump scares I won't say that they weren't a thing um, back in those days, but they were mm -hmm. much less of a an absolutely bog standard part of every horror film <laughs> sure, than they are sure. today. Yeah, you no, know, it was it was more the it was more the tension, the unpredictability of horror, the unpredictability of the gore in particular. Um, not just not knowing what I was getting into, I guess mm -hmm. I couldn't take the tension. Um, I was a pretty timid kid. I was a pretty timid teenager and I was a really, really naive young adult, uh, going off to college, having grown up on horror fiction. But as far as movies went, like I, my parents raised me on like classic musicals and, and Disney movies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just didn't have a whole lot of exposure, uh, to horror, let alone to good horror. So I had kind of a fascination with like uh, posters and uh, advertisements for for horror movies um, kind of back in the slasher era while just feeling that I was too timid to actually experience these things. I remember being really, really obsessed with Alien based on mm -hmm. the novel, like reading the novel when I was mm -hmm. a kid, the Alan mm -hmm. Dean Foster adaptation, and really wanting to know what it looked like on the screen. But being afraid to like mm -hmm. literally mm -hmm. being afraid to uh, watch this movie. And I, I didn't until college. Mm. Never so, stuff I, like that. Just like if I was actually exposed to like even a minor suspense film, mm -hmm. I would have nightmares and I'd uh, freak out about it. Like there was something about the intensity of a, like a visual and uh, in large part, like the music in horror films um, can be very intense. And I was mm -hmm. weirdly sensitive to that. Uh, I mean, I remember getting freaked out as a little kid by the music and like the, the battle music in the original Star Trek, which is all like <laughs> jangly, discordant, like minor notes. Yeah. Like something like that could freak me out. So you can imagine, you know, how brave I was in horror movies. <laughs> so is part of the distinct is part of the distinction then between like fiction and cinema that you can kind of put a novel down if you need to. But the movie is just you know, <laughs> washing over you and, you know. 
Absolutely. Although, I mean, one of the reasons I was always fascinated with Stephen King is it's so hard to put his books down. You know, mm. the mm. it's funny how the 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 galloping fear of I, I don't know what's going to happen next and I can't stop this narrative mm. was mm-hmm. such a plus in a book and mm-hmm. such a negative in a movie. Yeah. But yeah, that that feeling of being absorbed into a horror movie that you're watching and not having the the ability to escape it. Um, yeah. When I was a teenager, like DVD players didn't exist yet. I, sure. As I said, I'm a thousand years old. So, <laughs> you know, the the way people experience movies today where you're like, ah, I'll stream a horror movie at home. Um, I'll be fiddling with my phone the whole time. Yeah. Let me check in on social media. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get up and get a snack. Like that wasn't a way to experience a movie. You pretty much <laughs> experienced a movie in a theater. And a horror movie in a theater can be a very intense experience that you feel like you don't have control over, that you you can't pump the brakes um, if you get if you get freaked out. And it took me a long time to understand that that's the appeal. That's the point, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, in the same kind of way. It, it took me a while to uh, to get the appeal of roller coasters. Yeah. What was it that um, led you to kind of reevaluate how you how you saw horror movies then? Partially it was exposure. Um, Uh I've come to a real place in my life where I just believe whenever I hear somebody say, oh, I don't like that form of culture, it's all the same. You know, Mm -hmm. all all Mm -hmm. romance novels are the same. All Mm -hmm. hip hop is the same. Mm -hmm. All classical music is the same. It doesn't matter what the era is. It doesn't matter what the area is. When somebody says, oh, that's all the same, I I know they haven't tried very much of it. Mm -hmm, They mm -hmm. they don't care. Yeah. And that's not saying that they need to. You know, if you don't like classical, uh, listening to 400 classical albums isn't necessarily (laughs) going to make you like classical. Yeah. But when you say all classical sounds alike, you're speaking from a place of ignorance, you know, a a place of of lack of engagement and inability to distinguish. And that goes well, all you're you're really saying is that. Yeah. All you're really saying is this genre has certain conventions and to someone new to the genre, they're going to notice those conventions at first. Right. But also somebody who's outside the genre and doesn't have an interest in it is only going to be familiar with the the most like culturally resonant and culturally attractive examples of that genre. True. True. So, you know, it's like somebody who's heard two Kanye West songs thinking they know what hip hop (laughs) sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So going to work as a, a film critic meant I, I had to start watching horror movies from time mm. to time. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're new at a publication, you're low person on the totem pole, you, you take what you're given. And mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. often depends on scheduling. So, I mean, I was getting sent off to see movies that unnerved me and that I was uh, frightened by. And over the, the time and over a, a period of time, like exposure to more kinds of cinema than I'd seen. Um, helped a little bit with the the nervousness problem, the, oh, mm. this is too scary for me problem. But also, I just, I worked with a lot of uh, very intelligent people who did appreciate horror. And mm. I was frequently editing them or uh, collaborating on pieces with them or mm. collaborating on conceptualizing uh, pieces with them about what horror was doing. And I felt like maybe one of the, the kind of turning points for me on that was around the time um, Hostel came out. Mm-hmm. There was a whole wave of movies that were basically about people getting captured, often in foreign countries. You know, your, mm-hmm. your Turistas uh, and um, I Know Who Killed Me, like movies like that. People were getting mm-hmm. captured and tortured and often murdered. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see any appeal in it. Um, but I work with a guy named Scott Tobias, who I still podcast with uh, on, a, on a biweekly basis. 
and we call each other frenemies because we disagree about <laughs> just about everything. In cinema. <laughs> and one of the big things is he loves exploitation cinema. He loves extreme cinema. Um, mm. he, he loves movies that the rest of us call torture porn. Mm. And he would write some very intelligent things about some of these movies, about specifically the, the hostile era, mm. how we were really channeling our, our fear of torture um, mm -hmm. Because of some of the things going on in during uh, George W. Bush's presidency, mm -hmm. you know, the question of like, it's come out that America is torturing people. Yeah. What does that mean about us as uh, a, a group of people? What does that mean about us as a country? And there was a raging debate. Like, is it OK to torture people if that gets you information that saves mm -hmm. American lives? This was a, a big debate topic. Mm -hmm. And then we start getting all of these movies about people being graphically tortured. And Scott's point was like, yeah, these are exploitation movies. Some of them are not very good, but they're still all exploring this idea. They're exploring mm -hmm. our cultural anxieties of the moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And exploring ideas like that, uh, you know, looking looking back into like the 1950s when a lot of the horror uh, and science fiction movies were expressly about fear of, of outer space and fear right. of aliens and fear of being noticed. You know, because the Russians put Sputnik in the air and then there was the space race and suddenly there was just this, this big anxiety about like, what are we doing and what are we going to discover and is it going to kill us? Sure. As soon as you start looking at different eras of horror, you just you see all of these threads of the anxieties of the times being channeled into these, uh, in some cases, very sloppy movies that are just <laughs> like, is technology going to kill us? Are strangers going to kill us? Are foreigners going to kill us? Mm. Is disease going to kill us? You know, there's a lot of pandemic movies coming out right <laughs> now. Um, you know, is outer space going to kill us? Is something under the water going to kill us? Is nature going to kill us? There's there's so much in horror that's basically just people trying to process fear of death and mm -hmm. fear of specific directions of death. And the more I understood about like what this genre was doing and where these movements came from, and that it wasn't it wasn't basically just people kind of going boo and, and giggling <laughs> if they managed to make you jump. The more depth I saw in it, and the more I came mm. to appreciate it. So I mean, horror is in part in in the theater especially is about making you scared. But the more I started like intellectualizing some of these these things, the more I started externalizing some of these things, the less I was scared and the more I started appreciating the art of these movies. Hmm. It was really kind of stepping, being able to step back then and look at a film as sort of a, a, a piece of craft as opposed to an experience. Does that... Does that that was, that was certainly part of it. I mean, yeah. there is a conflict there because in part when you're reviewing a horror film, you're also reviewing it as an experience. Yeah. You know, is this film visceral? Like, did it grab me? Did it scare me? Did it, did it have an effect? Did it make me feel something? To some degree, whenever you're reviewing a film, that's one of the things that you're doing. But to sure. some degree, whenever you're reviewing a film, you're also doing that thing of uh, stepping back and looking at it as a piece of craft, at mm. least if it's good criticism. Right, right. Yeah, interesting story about Hostel, which I actually haven't seen, but you know, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the intel the intellectualizing um, about these movies, uh, especially at the time, made me appreciate the concept of what they were doing. Mm -hmm. I still don't really care for exploitation cinema. Yeah, you know, uh, a thing yeah. that doesn't have much story and is mostly just about people getting hacked up. Um, yeah, there are still horror movies that I just have not gone to see. 
I'm definitely the sort who wants wants to be seen as writing classy horror as opposed to um, <laughs> exploitative garbage. Um, but, you no, know, nobody wants to be known as creating <laughs> exploitative garbage. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But uh, yeah, the second you describe your work as horror, there's definitely a certain image in people's minds that, um, you know, you understand why um, so many people hide behind the phrase psychological thriller. You know? <laughs> For sure. Um, yeah, I saw this is so dumb, but I saw a thing the other day, just one of those, you know, memes that circulates. Uh, it was like the movie that was number one on your 21st birthday describes what your life is going to be like. So I just looked mine up for the heck of it. It was hostile. <laughs> <laughs> not promising. Not promising at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, so, yeah, I actually... You know, being that that was the era when my wife would actually go to horror movies with me, I have a lot of nostalgia for horror films from that era. But I was much more of a much more of a ghost and demon kind of guy than a torture porn mm. kind of guy. So like the exorcism of Emily Rose and uh, oh, there was a movie called Dark Water. Really good. I don't know mm, if people yeah. haven't seen that. They should check it out. It was a it was a remake and I never saw the original, but the American version is very good. But um that was one of the few <laughs> that my wife went, went with me to. Um, so, yeah. Um, so in the George Bush era, you come around to appreciate horror, <laughs> basically, is, is what, we're, what we're getting at here. I know, it's um, like a thousand years ago. It really does. It really does. And like I said, that was, that was my college years. Um, so... Yeah, it feels like a thousand years ago for a number of reasons. Um, but um, what is it? What is it that uh, changed for you, and when? I mean, one of the things that changed, I, I do think, is that just horror overall got better. Um, hmm. I mean, th- I think there were always standouts. Like, I remember seeing uh, like ads posters for the uh, the Friday the Thirteenth movies. And just kind of getting a feeling of, well, this is just the same thing over and over <laughs> and assuming there was no value to it. Yeah. The first Friday, the 13th movie I ever saw was uh, Jason X in 2001, oh, <laughs> which is the one where he goes to space. Yeah. And it's a straight up camp comedy. Uh, I believe it has a bunch of actors from Andromeda, which was uh, another science fiction thing. And it, it's kind of a joke that they're yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but it's bad. It's bad as a space movie. It's bad as a slasher movie. It's bad as a Friday <laughs> the 13th movie. And it, it kind of reminded me that I had no respect for this this series. Of course, coming into a movie series, not, I guess I should explain that the reason I saw Jason X was because it was the third movie in a triple feature at our local Bruin View, where oh, we were gosh. going like, just about every weekend that they had something new. <laughs> So I, I fundamentally paid no money to see this movie and was like there for completism. Uh, I, I do not think I would have sat through that if that was the third in a triple bill. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, we were, my husband and I. Um, I would have been like, let's go. My butt's getting numb. You know, nope, we were, we were marathoners and we were completionists. And if it was, by God, we'd signed on for a triple feature. We're going to stay for the triple feature. <laughs> But many years later, I actually got around to watching the first Friday the 13th, and it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. You know, it's, it was innovative for its time uh, with the camera work and, and the idea of using the camera as the, the POV of the stalker to suggest mm. to the audience, 
that they're seeing things and that the the characters aren't seeing things mm-hmm. you know to to kind of give you the the omnipotent gaze of the murderer um was pretty innovative back at the time the cinematography is actually astonishingly great mm. there's a, a scene at the end where your your prototypical final girl is on a boat on a lake and just the the deep green woods around her and the lake that she's floating in it's just it's gorgeous it's a really mm. surprisingly pretty film and I wasn't expecting to to find so much value there. Uh, but the more I look, the more these like long go long ongoing series that devolve into camp, like start from from pretty strong and creative and interesting places. And I don't know, movies like uh, Poltergeist that mm-hmm. seriously wigged me out when I first saw it, uh, have a lot of art to them and just a, a, like a lot of creativity and a, a lot of color and a lot of interest value. So, you know, bit by bit discovering kind of the diversity of horror, the the range and in some cases the quality of it, you know, that it wasn't all half-hearted Jason X's with uh, you know, <laughs> dumb, dumb teenagers getting cleared for having sex. Yeah. Uh, that that was part of what brought me around on it. Mm-hmm. I think maybe seeing G- Jason X also defanged some of horror for me a little, you know, seeing the extreme outlying uh thing in a a spectrum can kind of help you appreciate what the spectrum is a little better and being invited to laugh at something you know this is a movie that expressly invites you to laugh at the masked unstoppable killer with a machete Mm -hmm. hacking people Mm -hmm. up and it's easier to come back then to the version of that that's supposed to be scary Mm -hmm. and kind of kind of see the seams and see the strings but not mm. in a bad way just mm-hmm. in a, a, a defanging kind of way that helps you see the art mm. yeah that's really interesting so exposure was part of it but again i also just think horror films got better you know mm-hmm. they, they were churning out friday the 13th and nightmare on elm streets is uh for quite a while there there was an era where horror was mostly just doing the same thing over and over. Mm-hmm. And then like bit by bit, it seems like that shifted into smarter modes, more mm-hmm. thoughtful modes, uh, better crafted modes, where the assumption wasn't that horror is for drunk teenagers. The assumption <laughs> was that horror is for everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, these days you have movies like uh, like Get Out that's mm-hmm. expressly a horror movie, but it's also a pretty insightful investigation of racial relationships and racial mm-hmm. anxieties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's just there are more and more movies like that coming out these days in particular that kind of use horror to, again, explore our fears, um, but explore them in ways that we don't actually talk about in public very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm it can be easier for a horror movie to investigate what we're afraid of sometimes than it can be for say politicians to admit to what we're afraid of. Mm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. We might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves there um, though, because um, what you, you know, the, the, I, I'm not sure how you put it, but you're not super into horror anymore. Right. That um, is a pretty recent thing though. Okay. Um, Do you want to talk and, about that a little bit? Or we- sure. I think where it came from. So like these days, I'm, I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon. I'm responsible for like watching the calendar and picking out what we're going to cover mm-hmm. and assigning people to it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, getting them screeners, um, editing their their reviews when they come in, um, getting them posted on, on the site, all this stuff. And as a result, I'm getting solicitations for just like hundreds of uh, horror films a year. For sure. Yeah. 
that are mostly being made digitally, often very cheaply, mm-hmm. and kind of following the Blumhouse model. You know, Jason Blum and, and Blumhouse have created an, an interesting market where you don't necessarily need to have strong execution as long as you've got a, a strong gimmick something that's going to get butts and seats. Remind, remind me what door. Blumhouse does. I know I've heard the name Blumhouse, but I'm not. Uh, I'm going to say that I'm actually going to look this up because I oh, for sure. want to get this wrong and look dumb. Yeah. <laughs> the short answer is 100 million movies. Uh, and the yeah. long answer is I should have a, a better list in front of me. Like, I know I've heard the name Blumhouse. I just couldn't tell you what they're known for. The Purge, Oculus. Okay. Yeah, paranormal activity is kind of uh yeah. Got it. That's yeah. that's what I didn't want to get wrong. Yeah. So uh Blumhouse kind of started with movies like Paranormal Activity, which mm-hmm. you know was made for no money, mm-hmm. but went viral on how how frightening it was and to some yeah. degree how innovative it was, kind of following the the Blair Witch found footage model mm-hmm. of stuff caught accidentally by a camera. Right. Uh, you know, which in an era where everybody's filming everything all the time seems a lot more plausible. It's mm-hmm. kind of got that um, urban legend kind of feel to it. Right. Uh, and, you know, those those movies took off and they did movies like the Insidious series and um, the Purge series, like films that are kind of more high concept than than your average slasher. Mm-hmm. And more recently, Blumhouse has been doing things like uh, Hulu's Into the Dark series, where they're, mm-hmm. they're literally um, producing a film per month. Uh, those series are based around the holidays. Okay. You know, so mm-hmm. here's your Christmas movie. Here's your Thanksgiving horror movie. Here's your right. Yeah, Mother's I have Day. read about that a little bit. Yeah, I haven't uh, watched them, but I've read read some about them. Yeah. And then they did a similar project with Amazon, and uh, you know, so forth and so on. They're just they've kind of become a production factory. Right. Of churning out these little movies that that cost very little uh, in an era where that isn't a model as much anymore. The big mm-hmm. studios want to be making $150 million movies that make a billion dollars mm-hmm. because of the economics. And fewer and fewer people are making $5 million movies that might make $50 million. But uh, Blumhouse is, and they're, they're very successful at it. As long as they mm-hmm. keep expectations and expenses small, they can make a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty good at it. Um, you know, they're, movies like Happy Death Day come to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. a pretty good horror movie and a pretty good comedy movie and a pretty good Groundhog Day movie. Uh, and Blumhouse has the ability to just keep churning those things out. But as a result, you've got like just more and more people producing tiny little indie movies that similarly were maybe shot on phones um, or shot mm-hmm. on uh, the, the, the tiniest, cheapest cameras. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have got a concept and maybe they don't. Mm. But I was just finding myself buried under them. Um, so many solicitations coming in. And as I started looking at them in the aggregate, I started just feeling really burdened down. It's like, mm. here's a movie about somebody who gets into a rideshare car and goes on a harrowing ride and uh, mm. it, it is probably going to die. Here's mm. a movie about somebody who uses social media and encounters a horrible thing and is probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Here's a movie about a cam girl who has an obsessive stalker and is probably <laughs> going to die. Here's a movie about, uh, you know, uh, name it, uh, anything that you encounter in the world. Um, it, there's a dark side to it and you're probably going to die. <laughs> 
and just like reading so many descriptions of these movies you know here's somebody who goes camping and you know the woods are haunted and they're probably gonna die uh-huh. you start to get to a point of okay well if horror movies are are channeling our collective anxieties the message i'm getting right now is that we're afraid of everything <laughs> the message that i'm getting right now is just that everything might kill you i mean not wrong <laughs> it's not wrong and it's entirely reasonable you know because coming from a place of it's very difficult to break into the film world it's very easy yeah. to make a movie these days but it's very hard yeah. to break in to, yeah. to get a uh, distribution to get an audience to make a name mm-hmm. for yourself and making these tiny little horror movies has become the niche where a lot of people start out and yeah. you make a little horror movie and it becomes a big hit. Like the next thing, you know, Marvel studios is calling. Right. Right. So it makes sense that everybody's doing them, but then you just get to a place of, well, everything is scary and horrible all the time. <laughs> and I kind of feel like over the last year I've, I've had enough of everything is scary and horrible all the time. And everything's going to kill us. You go out your front door. It's going to kill you. You talk to your neighbor. It's going to kill you. Grocery store going to kill you. Food delivery going to kill you. Hey, you know, there's just a, an, again, an anxiety level that I feel like we're all experiencing already where mm-hmm. the kind of performative anxiety of a horror movie, the, the roller coaster feeling of we know that watching this movie isn't going to kill us, but what if, what if it did? What if we watched Unfriended and the <laughs> uh, next thing we knew our own internet was haunted? What if we watched The Ring and something crawled out of our TV and ate us? That kind of experience maybe just isn't something I'm feeling right now, you know? Mm, yeah. That, that actually, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I feel like that might go, <laughs> might go back a little bit to what I was saying towards the beginning of the hour about um, just kind of the oversat, you know, the, the deluge of mediocrity <laughs> you have to deal with when you, you know, um, cause for, for every, for every good movie, there's always a thousand imitators, you know, and if you're a critic, you have to sit through them all. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's scratch a, a critic. You're going to get a cynic uh, yeah, because true. of exactly well, that experience. I mean, how can you not? Right. Like, you know, everybody's like the critics don't speak for the people. It's like, well, yeah, because the people see like maybe four or five movies a year. And so everything seems new and novel to them and the critics have to sit through hundreds and i mean of course they're gonna have a different perspective on movies Um, yeah it's true and these days in particular uh, a critic is expected just to be an expert on everything i mean mm -hmm. that was that was true decades ago as well but uh it's easier it's much easier now for uh a random person on the internet to be a better expert at whatever Mm -hmm. you're writing about than you are and something i had to come to terms with as a critic like a long time ago um just the the idea when i started watching anime uh i Mm -hmm. I very quickly found out that anything that i watched there was somebody out there that was way more stupid than i had (laughs) yeah yeah uh, that that knew everything about that series and that anything i said was not intended for that person Mm. um but that's fine because i'm not necessarily speaking to the biggest expert in the room uh on Mm. any given thing I'm speaking to the person that's standing behind me that hasn't experienced that thing yet. And, uh, you know, kind of trying to help them. Like I, I spent the hours and took the time to go through this experience. Maybe I can help you with it and save you a little time if this isn't for you, or if this is exactly your jam, Yeah, I can, I can let you know one way or the other, (laughs) like sending your friends to the new restaurant to find out if it's any good. Mm -hmm. 
I want to push you on one thing. Because um, earlier you were saying horror has gotten a lot better in the last however many, 20, 30 years. Um, but then you turn around and you say horror is just, it has this glut of trite, cliched garbage shot on people's phones. Um, <laughs> is there a contradiction there or am I, am I uh, looking for a contradiction where there isn't one? How do you square that circle? I think it's in part, I can square the circle by saying, I don't know if those movies are trite garbage because I haven't watched them. Hmm. Um, okay. The the movies that I'm talking about that are uh, social media is going to kill you. That's what Unfriended was. And I enjoyed yeah. Unfriended. I saw that mm. movie in a theater with a bunch of friends and we had a blast. Yeah. We, we talked about it for quite a while to come because it was innovative. It was something mm. we hadn't seen before. It was unexpected. And it was it was just a little scary. Um, that movie was a fun experience. I'm mostly what I'm saying with uh, horror movies is like right now, I'm not mm-hmm. in the mood for uh, social media is going to kill you. Your phone's going to kill you. <laughs> not looking yeah. at your phone's going to kill you. Yeah. That level of paranoia. But the latest wave of everything going to kill you movies, I haven't seen them all. They're, mm. They may be gems and I'm just missing <laughs> out. So I'm definitely not saying that those movies all suck. When I yeah. talk about people making movies on their phones, I'm definitely not trying to imply that those movies are all going to be universally terrible. I mean, Mm -hmm. Steven Soderbergh Mm -hmm. is making movies on his damn phone. Mm -hmm. And whether you think his movies uh, suck or not, that's up to you. (laughs) But you can't hold that out as like a standard of of badness. Mostly what Mm -hmm. I'm saying is it's cheaper and easier than ever to make a movie. So there are a lot more of them. So there's a lot more competition for ideas. There's a lot more competition for people's eyeballs. And it's a lot harder to be innovative. I think the best horror right now is just some of the more sophisticated and and thoughtful and experimental horror uh, that mm-hmm. we've that we've seen in cinema. Is it the best horror that's ever been? I I don't know. I mean, is mm-hmm. Get Out better than Alien? I think they're both really terrific films that are doing very different things in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't really get into this like ranker crap where right. everything has to have a number and a value. Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> Like a whole lot of, as with uh, anything, a whole lot of good stuff is being made right now. A whole lot of bad stuff is being made right now. Mm-hmm. I think the good stuff is on average, maybe better and more thoughtful than it used mm-hmm. to be. Like certainly in the 80s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Cinematic standards were maybe a little low. Yeah, there. I mean, there was good cinema to come out of the 80s, but I feel like it was a very cynical time for horror of just you know, rip off Halloween and then crank out endless sequels to your Halloween ripoff. Um, and I don't know Great. why that was exactly. I don't know what the brain fever going through the horror end of Hollywood in the eighties was, but uh, yeah, um, <laughs> it's definitely, a, definitely a dark time, a dark time. Get it for horror. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it is interesting um, what you say about the cost of uh, making a horror movie going down so much. Cause I, I mean, I think, I feel like that's true of almost all art in general, right? Like digital technology has driven the cost of making anything so low that, you know, everybody is making stuff all the time. Um, I don't know. Is, do you see that as a, as a something's got to give kind of thing. Like I I think especially of maybe this is a tangent, but I I think especially like the glut of streaming television, you know, that there are literally hundreds of TV shows in production right now. And 
even if you were interested in all of them, there would be no way to watch all of them. And it's really hard to um, cut through the crap and find the stuff you actually want. It's actually worth your time. And I, I don't know if that's related to the, to the horror thing or not. Um, I don't know. Do you want to comment on that at all? Or It's a much bigger picture than the horror thing. The horror yeah. thing is a, a small offshoot of it. I think there's kind of two things going on simultaneously that, push up against each other and Mm -hmm. one is with so many streaming channels and with so many with such a low barrier to entry like i can shoot a film on an iphone like using a couple of filters that i downloaded that looks like steven soderbergh's last film because he literally shot his last film Mm -hmm. on an iphone with a couple of downloaded (laughs) filters yeah yeah if i can't find any place to distribute it you know if i can't get netflix to buy it for uh 50 bucks and a pat on the head I can put it up on YouTube and mm-hmm. like tomorrow, anybody can see that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, that you could possibly even make a little bit of money off the advertising on could, YouTube. Could monetize the advertising yeah. or if it's good enough, you know, you hear stories every day about so-and-so so spent two years animating something on a, like software at home and mm-hmm. uploaded it. And Spielberg came calling and yeah. now they work for yeah. now they work for Lucasfilm. Now they work for ILM. Now they, you know, teach at Cal Arts. Like who knows what? Mm. Somebody notices. Uh mm-hmm. somebody is impressed. Somebody notices and it it becomes an in to to actual work. Or who knows? Maybe they just uh, take off virally and become an influencer and become a millionaire at age 23. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. It doesn't happen to a lot of people, but it's a path. So I feel like what's going to give isn't so much people are going to stop making horror movies as people are going to stop paying for as many uh, streaming services as they are. We've Mm -hmm. already, I think, hit uh, an apex of that Mm -hmm. where new streaming services are coming in like Peacock. Peacock Mm -hmm. is kind of like, hey, we're we're totally a free to play game, uh, but you can like buy special upgrades Mm -hmm. as you go. (laughs) You know, it's it's gamifying free games into a streaming service because if they just came along and said everything's behind a paywall or like Netflix, but we're newer and you have to pay for us too, everybody would say, I'm good. You know, <laughs> people have Netflix, they have Hulu, they have HBO Max, they have Disney Plus. What I'm just hearing over and over from people out in the world is, uh, and that's it, I'm done. I, yeah, I have no more sure. hours. And yet new streaming services keep getting launched. I, yeah. I got an <laughs> email the other day for some like, indie streaming service that's going to make its own movies and and stream them and it's like only 12 bucks a month to watch movies you've never heard of with nobody you've ever heard of in them (laughs) who could pass that up yeah right it'll be the next quibi oh wait never mind (laughs) so i don't think fewer movies are going to get made necessarily because everybody's everybody's got the dream you know more than i think people are going to stop like moving to california trying to be discovered I just think that the audience is going to continue to splinter and splinter and splinter mm. and the value of what people are going to be willing to pay to see a given thing is going to continue to lower. And mm. like, that's what I think is going to break far more than everybody just gives up one day and stops uh, shooting horror movies. Mm-hmm. On their phones. Mm-hmm. Makes it harder to make a living as an artist though, at the very least. Well, that is certainly true, but it was it was always <laughs> not that it was ever easy. Yeah, artist. that's true. That's you know, true. In in every age for different reasons. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um we're into the last 10 minutes of the hour. So why don't we um let, let me ask you this before we uh before we wrap up. Do you you've obviously gone 
back and forth on horror? Do you see yourself coming back around to it at some point? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, when when things are a little less anxious, <laughs> you know, when when things are a little less unpredictable and you know, I'm I'm vaccinated. All my friends have gotten vaccinated. We're slowly starting to get together for social activities again. We're slowly going to restaurants again. We're less concerned about, uh, you know, somebody invading the White House and upending democracy tomorrow than we used mm-hmm. to be. And with <laughs> with like less free floating anxiety and anger in the culture right now, to some degree, it's still there. It's just being expressed less and in different ways. Mm-hmm. But things have calmed down a little bit to the point where I can see a future where I'll be ready to to get back on the roller coaster. I'm probably just going to be more judicious about, you know, maybe maybe what I want in horror right now is not so much, is this the scariest? Mm-hmm. Or even necessarily, is this the best crafted? Maybe what I want is just, is this expressing a fear or an anxiety that seems interesting? As opposed to the the generic everything gonna kill you. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let me ask you this: uh, aside from your new beliefs themselves, or your change in <laughs> viewpoint, my script says new beliefs, but maybe beliefs isn't the right word for this topic. But you know what I mean. Aside from your uh, changing viewpoint, what what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind on horror? Boy, that's an interesting question. I mean, it really was horror, I think, that taught me that any given art form um, looks homogenous from the outside and is incredibly nuanced on the inside. Mm. I've come to to find that like literally any human endeavor, uh, if you if you dig deep enough into it. One of my big examples for this of all the stupid things was Foursquare, the the children's Mm. game. Mm -hmm. I never played Foursquare when I was a kid. Uh, my husband and I were biking somewhere uh, one day and it rained and we we pulled in at a, it was a weekend, we pulled in at a uh, elementary school we were passing and hung out under the awnings and looked at the four square boards on the, on the ground and mm. kind of talked about it like, do you know how to play four square? No, and me neither. Do you have any idea what the rules are? No, me neither. And I went home and looked it up and immediately found out that there's like an international foursquare league. There are like <laughs> Olympic level competitions. There are regional rules. There are national rules. There are huge debates and symposiums about what the rules for foursquare should be. Mm-hmm. Humanity is capable of complicating everything. <laughs> and, you know, if you, if you want to be a, a basket weaver on Etsy, you have to compete with 800 other basket weavers on Etsy and all of them are going to have ideas about the best way to weave baskets. And some of them are going to hate you for your beliefs. <laughs> so, I mean, horror was kind of where I first came into understanding how much we can complicate even the simplest ideas. The, mm. the simplest idea of horror is you're in the dark and you don't know what else is there with you. You know, the simplest mm-hmm. idea of horror is there's something unknown is that unknown thing dangerous? Yes or no. Mm-hmm. But we found a million different ways to express that. Mm-hmm. And it's become fascinating to me how variable those ways are and how much people can inject their own personalities and their own flavors into different ways of asking that same question over and over. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily any more complicated than any other genre. It's not necessarily any more nuanced than any other genre. But because it's the genre I resisted most in my life, it's maybe the genre that 
I've, I've been most enthusiastic to, to see that nuance in, to discover hmm. that nuance in. Hmm. And maybe because it's the genre that's most placed and making us feel something really primal. It's just kind of ended up with a, a special place in my my critical pantheon, I guess, if we're going to be pretentious, in just my ways of of thinking about movies and and creativity and art in general. So I don't know. I, I guess what I've most learned is that there is nothing simple about art ever. Hmm. There's nothing simple about creative endeavor ever. There's always somebody that's uh, finding a new way to do it and finding a new way to complicate it and finding a new way to connect to people through it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's always really easy to dismiss things out of ignorance, right? Um, it's harder to dismiss things as you learn more about them. (laughs) (laughs) And to some degree, I think that's why people resist, you know, Mm -hmm. we see an awful Mm -hmm. lot of people online just so clearly have their minds closed to any kind of uh, new information because it's exhausting. You know, yeah. it's exhausting yeah. to uh, explore an issue. It's exhausting to hear all sides. It's so much easier to say, you shouldn't be allowed to have an opinion. Only my opinion should exist. <laughs> and people are tired, you know, because yeah. there's a lot out there to know and nobody likes feeling ignorant. <laughs> it's true. It's true. On that note, um, why don't we wrap things up with these three questions that I ask all my guests. Uh, this is at least nominally a philosophy podcast. So, uh, I try to kind of kind of poke at these questions of um, ontology and epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, so first of all, Tasha, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? I think I've spent my entire life trying to figure out what my identity is. And mm-hmm. the fact that everybody's identity is constantly shifting means that becomes very hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, right right now I'm living in a, a life where two of my closest friends, two of the, the people I would have said I know best in the world, um, are both transitioning. You know, within mm. the last six months, they've discovered mm. something entirely new about their identity. And they're trying to figure out who they are and what that means and how to relate to their own bodies and their mm. place in the world. I think we're all constantly changing um, up until the point where we stagnate and that we should put off stagnating as late as we possibly can. Mm. And part of that means listening to other people and le- being open to learning and learning from other people. And part of that means not ever being so inured to your own identity that that you're not willing to, to compromise on who you are and, and what that could change. You know, mm. if I say, my identity is, uh, and a lot of people are experiencing this right now, like particularly about uh, political decisions and like sexual gender identity uh, decisions. If you if you say like, I am this one thing, this is me, this is my identity, then you're kind of shutting yourself off from having a future, except mm. as this one thing forever. So I, I think identity is constantly in flux. I think smart people, the older they get, the more they look back on their past identities and wonder what the hell they were thinking, you know, how could I have been that naive? How could I have believed that? And that's a good thing. You know, yeah. uh, identity is maybe what you tell yourself in the moment and how you process the world around you, but it should be a, a constantly evolving thing rather than uh, a set object. Hmm. All right. What is, human nature are we all the same deep down are we all different deep down are we all blank slates what do you think i think we're a bunch of frightened animals deep down (laughs) 
how far down you have to go to get there, how it's expressed, um, you know, those are all very complicated questions. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we're that fundamentally different from each other on a really basic level. You know, we all need to eat food and get sleep and excrete waste. We're, we're basically, there are a lot of biological functions that we share, but we need very different things. Um, you know, we have very different chemistry. We have very different biology and there are so many different factors that affect how we pursue those basic things, uh, what we associate with those basic things. It gets real complex, real fast, and trying to understand what's core and what isn't, I think, is the work of a lifetime. Hmm. So, like, I, I do think we are fundamentally the same. That doesn't necessarily mean anything when it comes to, for instance, present politics. You know, the hmm. conflict and the questions that are going on right now about uh, Israel and Palestine are not questions that can be solved by saying, but, but we all need water to live. You know, mm-hmm. we, we all need mm-hmm. food to live. We all need sleep to live. The fact that there is maybe a fundamental human nature doesn't matter a hill of beans. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you take into account your cultural experiences, your family experiences, mm-hmm. your personal experiences, your chemical biological experiences. So I think we are all the same deep down. I'm not sure that it matters uh, mm-hmm. politically, culturally, personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. And finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? Oh, I don't think you do. Uh, <laughs> I do. Doesn't make it very useful as truth then, does it? <laughs> no, well, not necessarily. I think we, I think we overrate truth. I think, hmm. uh, again, well, maybe one of the things that we've learned most about personal identities and about human nature is that we both have truths that we hold as truths that mm-hmm. are not true for each other. And, you know, because we come from different experiences, we have different perspectives and some of them are real, real basic. You know, Um, my truth as a a straight white woman walking through the world is not the same truth as the truth of a gay black man walking through the world. And it doesn't make either of our truths less true. I think that there are universal truths, but they don't necessarily have anything to do with human experience. You know, I think that I think that gravity exists and that it, it pulls us all down to to earth and that that's a real thing. But as soon as you start like putting people into the mix, uh, you know, if a car hits another car, the drivers are both going to have different truths about how that happened um, mm. based on what they were able to observe, based on what mm. they experienced. And a bystander is going to have like yet another truth. So can we get to the the fully objective truth about that car crash who hit who whose fault it was what happened i think there probably is one i don't know that it's within the bound of like human ability to actually get there and and figure out what it was because i don't think there's any such thing as like full objectivity i don't think Mm -hmm. there's any way i don't know maybe (laughs) at a moment of thinking well maybe there's a maybe eventually there'll be a machine and intelligence that doesn't have our biases and can tell us what truth is and then i immediately thought no it's going to be programmed by us so (laughs) it'll have them all baked in I think what is true in X circumstance is ultimately a very philosophical question, but a less interesting question than how did you experience that? How did I experience that? Why are they different? And what can we do about it? Mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing in, in the world for humans to do is understand each other 
you know, mm. to understand mm-hmm. that all of those other people out there are just as much people as you are that have the same kind of rich internal world that you have mm-hmm. that have fundamentally different truths from you are that have fundamentally different truths from the ones that you have. People mostly just don't ever seem to get that. And it's responsible for an awful lot of pain and an awful lot of confusion in the world. Mm. So I, I believe in truth. I'm not sure I believe that uh, like as, as physical mortal beings, we can access it. I know you did a lot of, uh, a lot of faith and religion and philosophy stuff in, uh, <laughs> in your last season. And I don't necessarily want to go there, but uh, I don't know, maybe there's uh, maybe there's something after this where we get to find out what truths are, <laughs> but I strongly I mean that- suspect that they're not going to be tied to what we see as truth from like our biological existence. I mean, that, that does raise an, an interesting question, which is like, if, if, um, if there's no hope for objectivity and we each have our own truths, when those truths come into real conflict, i.e., you know, or e.g. Israel and Palestine or whatever, like, is there hope for, is there any hope for reconciling them? You know, like, <laughs> if there's no such thing as objectivity, how can we reconcile our truths, you know? It requires a fundamental good faith uh, effort on everybody's part that mm. just does not seem to be part of how we do anything <laughs> these days. Yeah, you know, from from deciding who's going to control a particular piece of land to deciding who's going to be allowed to vote to deciding mm-hmm. who's going to have all the money in the country uh, <laughs> to just deciding like whether X movie is good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. actually having the form of intellectual curiosity that lets you wonder what other people's truths are, it feels like it's rarer than it used to be. Hmm. Maybe it's not. Maybe we're just being exposed to uh, more of the, the belligerent in curiosity. Yeah. I guess, I guess I'm curious, like, I don't, you know, I don't want to waste too much of your time. We're past an hour, but um, I guess I'm curious if you could um, point to any, what, what you would consider a historical example of like really good, good faith engagement. And I know I'm putting you on the spot, so. <laughs> I don't know that I could fundamentally speak to that outside my own personal experience, okay. you know, because if I were, if I were to point to, uh, I don't know, like negotiations over ending any particular war, for instance, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I wasn't part of the constitutional Congress. Like <laughs> I don't know yeah. what was going through people's heads. Sure. And, about the the best I can do is, uh, you know, point to musicals and say, here's what somebody thought was going on here. You know, you can point to people's writing and, uh, you know, point to to all of the the craft and historical research that went into Hamilton and say, well, according to Hamilton's own words, here's what he thought. According to Burr's mm. bright written word, here's what he thought. But like fundamentally, I wasn't there and I wasn't part of it. So sure. I don't know. Did those people act <laughs> in good faith? Um <laughs> I think it's hard to find examples of a, of that kind of good faith on a national scale, uh, mm-hmm. let alone an international scale. I don't know. I Maybe yeah. it's something that only can happen on a personal scale between people who care about each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or far more likely, there are uh, you know, ways in which it happens every day, all the time, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we just don't, don't know about it because we aren't in those people's heads. Yeah. I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... I think in recent years, at least, I've kind of come to the conviction that there really can't be, I'm I'm using air quotes because I'm not sure what this means, but really can't be good faith engagement 
on a political level because there's so much power and privilege at stake. And, you know, all it takes is one person engaging in bad faith to poison the whole, the whole thing. Um, you know, no matter, no matter how good and pure your, um, your ideals are, you know, there's always somebody willing to cheat, lie, steal and kill for the opposite, you know, <laughs> which I don't, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I don't want to be that cynical, but I, I don't know if I, I don't know a way around that conviction. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been horrifically cynical all my life yeah. and it's, yeah. it's kind of a poisonous place to be, but at the same time, one of the problems of being cynical, it's like being depressed, you know, yeah. when you're depressed, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily know you're depressed. <laughs> part of the depression mindset is making it very hard to see outside yourself. Mm-hmm. When you're cynical, part of what you tell yourself is, I'd like to be less cynical, but if I was, would I just be naive? Yeah, for sure. Sure. That seems like a good note to end it on. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a downer to me. Yeah, uh, no. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a, you know, any, any hope for something uh, larger out of all of this. We, we started with, uh, we started with, Hey, get out is a good horror film. Um, <laughs> that uh, like questions some, some fundamental things about American society. And uh, now we're wondering if politics can exist in any way other than uh, the worst common denominator system. It's, it's, a, it's a sad place to wrap. It is, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think a lot of an episodes have kind of ended in a similar place <laughs> on this show. <laughs> I think I was I was telling you before we recorded that I just, I started the show at least partly because I felt like I had a lot to say to the world and wanted to yell it into a void as opposed to um, posting it on a blog where it would immediately get torn apart by Twitter. Um. <laughs> I guess I will say this to go back to horror films. I guess to go back to to the the fundamental idea. I, I kind of said you know the purest example of horror is you're in the dark and something there is. You're in the dark and something's there with you and you don't know whether it's dangerous or not. Mm-hmm. Within that parameter, people have made so many different stories. And so many of those stories are about the triumph of the human spirit. So many mm-hmm. of those stories mm-hmm. are about like finding and making connections that enable you to survive, about mm-hmm. thinking your way through the problem, about making uh, making <laughs> the friends we made. The real horror was the friends <laughs> we made along the way. <laughs> And whenever you have a horror movie that takes off, just as whenever you have any movie that takes off or any any book, any song, any painting, there's a connection there. You know, there's a connection between the creator and and the recipient that's about here's an emotion that I'd like you to feel. Can mm-hmm. can you can mm-hmm. you get there? And the act of accepting art and internalizing it and experiencing emotions. I think is one of the purer forms of good faith communication we have. Hmm. I think the experience of sitting down in the dark and turning off your damn phone (laughs) and tuning out the world for 90 minutes or an hour or two hours or whatever it takes and saying, you're here to tell me a story. I want to listen to that story and I want to experience the experience that you have set out for me. I think that's an act of, of good faith on Hmm. both people's sides. I think mm-hmm. good movie making and good movie watching is a collective act of good faith. And I, I think ultimately it, you know, Roger Ebert famously said that movies are machines for creating empathy. Mm-hmm. And I really do believe that, you know, horror mm-hmm. movies help us sympathize with vulnerable people um, in terrible situations. 
and maybe running away from Jason because you're a naked teenager who just had sex is not the most the vulnerable position we really need to empathize with. No, maybe that's maybe that's not putting something into the world that like touches us all in a deep emotional place. It's still kind of fun. But uh, you know, other movies, maybe the um the immigrant story His House on Netflix, which is a mm. super creepy, very effective, well-made horror story. Uh, about some of the the troubles that face immigrants, some of the the mm. limitations of the system and the way they're haunted by their own past. Like going into a movie like that and sitting down and letting it do what it's trying to do, letting it drive empathy, letting it tell you, here's somebody's truth. Here's what it mm. feels like to be this person and to be afraid. Be afraid with them. Like be part of their truth, be part of their experience. Mm. Maybe there's your uh, your act of of openness and your act of sincerity and uh, you know your act of honesty. Maybe maybe that's where communication and truth can come from. For sure, yeah, that's definitely a better place to leave it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's let's leave it there, um, Tasha. It's been so much fun talking to you. Thank you for coming this on the show. A really interesting conversation. You you definitely <laughs> ask questions I have never heard a podcaster ask before. So that's that's exciting. I like to try to poke and prod a little deeper and or just be really awkward and make people feel weird. Um, (laughs) One or the other, sometimes both. Um, Before we go, uh, you want to tell people where they can find you, where they can find your writing? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Uh, No spaces, just my full name. Um, I'm there, you know, primarily as a a writer and a a, a person. So I don't really have an (laughs) alias. Uh, I'm currently the film and TV editor at polygon.com. You can find my writing there. Uh, That's pretty much the only place I write these days. You can find old writing of mine all the heck over the internet, you know, (laughs) on, on NPR and uh, io9 and and Vulture and the dissolve is still around. You can read stuff there. The AV club is still around. You can read stuff there, but uh, you know, current thoughts of the moment, um, mostly on Twitter and polygon. And then I've got a podcast with uh, my my old exploitative, uh, extreme cinema loving buddy Scott Tobias and a couple of other veterans from the Dissolve days, uh, Keith Phipps and Genevieve Kosky. We all work together at the AV Club. We all work together at the Dissolve. We all get, still get together and podcast about movies. Um, and that podcast, uh, every week we look at a new film and we compare it with an old film from the past that it has something in common with. And we kind of use the two films to, to comment on each other and help us understand uh, both of the films. I think if you come to that podcast, you're going to hear a lot more of me like arguing with people. <laughs> very, very argumentative podcast sometimes, but it's fun. Uh, it's called The Next Picture Show. Uh, and you can find it at Next Picture Pod on Twitter. We'll get you to uh, like where all of the links are. Right on, right on. For a second, I was like, wait, did she even say the title? And then I, I didn't, I didn't want to look stupid, like asking when you'd said it, but. Oh, we could have, we could have looked stupid together if I completely forgot. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or at my website, which is LukeTHarrington.com. And I will see you next time. If you enjoyed that spooky episode of Changed My Mind, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, yeah, that was inexcusable. I have no idea why I thought that would be a good idea. 
Anyway, if you enjoyed that episode, um, please go to patreon.com slash change my mind and you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. Uh, if you support it for $5 or more, you get a bonus episode every single month, just like this one. What you just heard was our bonus episode from September. Uh, in October, we had Ben Hansen on the show. Ben is the host of several um, paranormal-themed documentaries on the Discovery Channel, uh, including most recently Shock Docs Hudson Valley, which is a very interesting documentary about alien abductions. Um, and in November, uh, we are going to have philosophy professor at the University of Paris, Justin E.H. Smith, um, had a really interesting conversation with him about Leibniz and what it even means to change your mind. So, and we're going to have bonus episodes all year. Uh, so check it out. That's patreon.com slash change my mind. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash change my mind. If you want to get in touch with the show, please email us at changedmymindpod at gmail.com or just tweet at me at Luke T. Harrington or at the show, at Changed Mind Pod. Um, Changed My Mind is produced by Blake Collier. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen, and it is presented by the Raven Creek Social Club. Thanks so much for listening. Happy Halloween, stay safe, and please don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.